Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash SQQ. This activity is supported by an educational grant from GSK Limited. Welcome to this Peer Voice panel discussion on lupus nephritis. This activity comprises three presentations featuring Professors Murray Urowitz, Zahir Amora, and Brad Ravan. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Good day. Um, I'm uh, Murray Urowitz from the University of Toronto in Canada, and uh, my uh, co-participants today are Dr. Brad Rovan from uh, Ohio State University in the United States and Dr. Zahira Moura from Université de Sorbonne in Paris, France. Today we'll, we will be discussing lupus and the kidney, emerging treatment strategies and how to use them. In this activity, we will understand the need for optimizing control of lupus nephritis and how to identify those patients who would benefit from a novel therapeutic approach. In the first presentation, we will review the prevalence, causes, and consequences of lupus nephritis. Brad, maybe you could lead us off with the prevalence of lupus nephritis. Yeah, thank you very much, Murray, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Lupus nephritis is the most common, but not the only cause of kidney injury in patients with lupus. Despite the improvements in the management of lupus nephritis, about 10 to 15% of patients remain at risk for developing end-stage uh, kidney disease uh, over time. The risk factors for developing uh, lupus nephritis include a younger age at onset, male sex, and non-European ancestry. If you look here at the uh, percentage of uh, patients developing lupus nephritis after a diagnosis of lupus, uh, patients of African-American ancestry and Hispanic ethnicity have a much higher uh, uh, incidence of developing lupus nephritis. But more importantly is, again, a composite outcome of doubling of serum creatinine, end-stage renal disease, and death within three years. Thank you very much. And so now, Amir, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what does the clinician see uh, in terms of presentations of lupus nephritis? Well, for, for, for as a reminder, I would like to, to, to underline that for a long time, we thought that uh, lupus nephritis occurred in the first years of the disease. But we know now that it can appear at uh, any time. The, the key message is that uh, renal involvement in lupus is often minimally symptomatic. Of course, there is always proteinuria by definition, so this underlines the importance of regularly looking for this proteinuria with urine deep 6. This proteinuria may be important enough to give nephrotic syndrome with edema, which can be a clinical sign, and with proteinuria, very often there is a microhematuria. As lupus nephritis is a glomerular attack, hypertension may be present, but this is not constant. And in the third of cases, we can find hematic or cellular casts. There may be also 
impaired kidney function, but this is not mandatory. We can have patients with lupus nephritis with normal renal function. I would like to insist also on tubular abnormalities that are indicative of interstitial involvement that are very common in lupus and this renal interstitial involvement has been underestimated for a very long time and we know now that this interstitial, interstitial involvement is associated with the long-term prognosis. And maybe you could tell us, okay, so we now have made that diagnosis and, and what are the important consequences of having lupus nephritis? Yeah. Um, so if you look at the United States Renal Data Service uh, database, uh, overall uh, patients with lupus nephritis account for about four to five cases of end-stage kidney disease, billion people in the general population. However, as we were discussing uh, earlier, uh, because of the differences in patients of different ethnicity or race, you can see that uh, this really is 17 to 20 cases per million uh, black patients, six cases per million Hispanic patients, and about two and a half cases per million Caucasians. If you look at this in the United Kingdom, a 19% of patients who were white versus 62% of patients who were black progressed to end-stage uh, kidney disease. Now, that, of course, is the most serious complication of uh, lupus nephritis, but I want to emphasize that chronic kidney disease is an important outcome of lupus nephritis. My suspicion is that there's a high incidence of chronic kidney disease in lupus patients, but it's quite difficult to estimate. Almost always when you have a flare of lupus nephritis, the kidney sustains some chronic damage. Chronic kidney disease is especially important because it's an independent risk factor for cardiovascular mortality and morbidity, and we know that patients with lupus, who are generally young women, are also at increased risk for cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. So the idea, uh, Murray, is that we really want to prevent chronic damage from accruing through our treatment, rapid treatment of lupus nephritis. And we want to, we know that we're going to get some chronic damage with each flare of lupus nephritis, but we really want to minimize that to prevent these outcomes. Over time, there has been a decline in, in end-stage kidney disease in patients with lupus. As you can see, the first section of time is from the mid-1970s up to about just before 2000. And this is really when we started using glucocorticoids combined with an immunosuppressive agent, initially uh, cyclophosphamide. And, and then we sort of saw a, a nice decline over time, but then this plateaued. Um, the third time frame is, is really interesting because that occurs at the time when cyclophosphamide went out of favor uh, and mycophenolate mofetil, or MMF, was uh, starting to be used more and more for patients with lupus. <clears throat> Many of us were worried about this because we really didn't have good long-term studies on how patients treated with mycophenolate would do compared to cyclophosphamide. 
And it seems like in the very last time frame, about 2010 or f- and then going forward, you see a slight uptick in stage kidney disease, but then it, it really declines again. So what I could say from this is we have made improvements. We have seen uh, better results in terms of preventing end-stage kidney disease in our patients, but we've sort of reached a plateau with our current level of therapy. All right. So with that in mind, uh, how are, you, how are we going to classify our patients? How are we going to look at this so that we may be able to predict the, the course a little bit better? Well, uh, I think that that's, of course, uh, a, a really important question. Uh, this is uh, sort of a, a time frame of how uh, the kidney evolves uh, in terms of lupus nephritis and prognosis. And operating a little bit in the dark, in my opinion. Uh, one of the problems uh, with understanding the natural history of lupus nephritis is we have not done a lot of biopsies where we've had repeated uh, uh, studies of the kidney histology. And what we do know, uh, unfortunately, is that our best biomarkers are what we use currently, which is serum creatinine or estimated GFR uh, and proteinuria. And, and these biomarkers are okay, but they're not infallible. And the reason I say that is because you can actually have proteinuria from acute glomerulonephritis, acute lupus nephritis. But if you've sustained enough damage uh, to the glomeruli and the tubular interstitium, as, as the hair was mentioning before, you can actually then have proteinuria that's chronic. And then you don't know if, if this is just stable chronic disease or if the patient actually has ongoing inflammation. And so you can see here sort of a, a, an assumption time course of progression towards end-stage kidney disease. And I would suggest to you that what we want to do is intervene at the time of, of lupus diagnosis to minimize chronic damage as much as possible, as I said before. But also, I think that as we sort of accumulate more and more therapies, we're going to have to understand um, uh, how we can evaluate what's happening in the kidney parenchyma in real time. And of course, that comes to the idea of uh, searching for new and better biomarkers that are much more accurate than proteinuria. And of course, several of us are engaged in that type of research. Right. Thank you. All right. So we've got lupus nephritis. We know what can happen. And this is uh, has implications in terms of patient survival, et cetera. So Brad, do you want to finish this, this off for us? This is a really interesting study uh, from Heather Reich. Uh, where she looked at lupus patients. So the patient has lupus, and then you can see the various categories. They have no lupus nephritis or no chronic kidney disease, best survival. They have no lupus nephritis, but they have chronic kidney disease. Well, what does that mean? Well, they could have had something else causing the chronic kidney disease. Don't forget a lot of the medications that we use for lupus could be nephrotoxic. Also, patients are generally immunosuppressed. They can have sepsis. They can have acute kidney injury for a variety of reasons, and this could actually uh, result in chronic kidney disease. They have lupus nephritis, no chronic kidney disease. Look at the big drop in survival that that 
one diagnosis makes. And then the very worst survival is you have lupus nephritis and you've developed chronic kidney disease on top of that. Thank you. So lupus nephritis, bad, uh, no matter what it's combined with, it leads to impaired renal function and, uh, and survival. There are occasions uh, that uh, the renal deterioration occurs in a catastrophic fashion so that the patients go into end-stage renal disease within a year or two. And we actually reported uh, 10 such patients recently, and there are a number of very interesting uh, factors associated with this catastrophic progression. So first of all, there are a number of histologic patterns. And so thrombotic microangiopathy is one which could contribute to lupus nephritis. So you've got two mechanisms of injury. Collapsing glomerulopathy is another. This is a very interesting uh, syndrome where you get a, uh, a segmental or global collapse of the glomerulus with proliferation of the, uh, of the podocytes um, and, and some increased interstitial uh, inflammation. And when you see this on your initial biopsy, that is a very bad prognostic uh, implication. And of course, there is that ever-present poor compliance. The patient who doesn't feel bad because they've got primarily lupus nephritis, and despite what we tell them about lupus nephritis, they don't believe they're very sick. Okay, so Brad, with, uh, tell, tell us about the early intervention and, and its success in achieving uh, uh, slowing of renal damage. In our current uh, standard of care therapies, which are generally mycophenolate plus glucocorticoids or um, uh, cyclophosphamide plus glucocorticoids, and now, of course, we use cyclophosphamide low-dose urolupus uh, protocol mostly, can see that the uh, percentage of patients achieving a complete renal response, and I realize that's differently defined for each study, but uh, the in, in general, that means that the uh, serum creatinine has stabilized or improved or the EGFR has, has stabilized or has not gone more than a certain uh, percentage lower than the baseline, and the proteinuria has uh, declined to less than 500 milligrams a day. You can see that the best data are from the ELOT study showing about 50% of the patients uh, achieved a complete renal response. Uh, but that study was Northern European patients mainly. When you have more diverse populations, the one-year complete renal response rate using mycophenolate or cyclophosphamide is just over 30%. So I, I want to make it clear that uh, despite the improvements we've had in therapy, we're not doing really well. So... Let's talk for a moment about the classic therapies and see where we are. But I, I think people sort of misinterpret is that cyclophosphamide and mycophenolate work instantaneously uh, to make lupus nephritis go away. And really what's acting immediately are the glucocorticoids, and they're very good at making inflammation decline. Okay. And that's what you have to do initially to sort of get the disease under control. The second part, which should be simultaneously with the first part, is you have to suppress ongoing autoimmunity because if you don't do that, it just continues. And that's why uh, patients who aren't treated with cyclophosphamide or mycophenolate continue to flare and eventually lose kidney function. So after cyclophosphamide was discovered, 
Obviously, uh, we, we improved the end-stage uh, renal disease uh, outcomes in patients, but the trade-off was giving patients a drug that's highly toxic. And so for the next several decades, we tried to work out what may be less toxic for these patients. And mycophenolate came along, a drug used in kidney transplantation for many years, and it was compared in the ALMS trial. But this is, is showing us uh, here is a postdoc analysis looking at uh, uh, different ethnicities and, and uh, uh, racial background of patients. Really, there's no particularly high difference uh, in mycophenolate or cyclophosphamide. And please be aware at the time, this was high-dose cyclophosphamide NIH regimen. So um, that tells you that we still have a ways to go. So in summarizing, so Brad, since... Uh, <laughs> You're the nephrologist among us. Maybe you could summarize for us where where we're at at this at this point in time. We have reduced the risk of end stage kidney disease from lupus, but it still remains a substantial issue for a lot of patients. It's sometimes, as here had indicated, can be very difficult to diagnose because it's often very silent in the initial stages. And delaying therapy has implications for eventually developing end-stage kidney disease. I think that we need to think uh, very much about new strategies of how we do kidney biopsies. I think that our own work and other uh, uh, investigators' work have indicated that you can have pretty substantial histologic kidney disease with not much proteinuria. And so maybe our criteria for looking at when we do a biopsy need to be revised because we might be able to intervene even earlier. And then I think we do need new treatment strategies. And of course, we're going to discuss these because we now have some newly approved medications for lupus. But we really do need additional strategies uh, to achieve clinical complete responses more often than we do right now, which is really only about a third of the patients at about one year. So thank you for that, Brad. That's the, the bleak story of where we are, or some not as bleak as in the past, but still bleak, and, um, and, and actually gives us reason to look forward to uh, newer approaches that might be available, which obviously we're going to discuss next. Welcome back. For our second presentation, we're going to be dealing with novel therapies for lupus nephritis. Zahir, uh, we want to deal with a number of issues first. How understanding of the pathogenesis of lupus nephritis has led to treatment advances, and then a brief overview of the molecular pathways and corresponding agents that are or have been explored for lupus nephritis. I think that the simple way to understand the pathophysiology of SLE is to remember that all lupus patients have antibodies directed against nuclear antigens. We know that during SLE, there is an abnormal production of nuclear antigens, and these immunogenic nuclear antigens may be generated by abnormal apoptosis, netosis, or mitochondrial oxidation in response to viral infection or UV uh, exposure. These nuclear antigens 
through the TLR receptors stimulate a key lupus cell, the plasmacytoid dendritic cell. This, uh, this cell is able to secrete large amounts of interferon alpha, which is a key cytokine in SLE. We know that interferon alpha has multiple effects that stimulate globally the immune system. The interaction between nuclear antigens, dendritic cells, and lymphocytes activate the production of antinuclear antibodies, and some of these antinuclear antibodies are pathogenic. And in SLE, there are many amplification loops that are probably linked to genetic background, which sustain the autoimmune process. For example, these genetic abnormalities favor the overproduction of several cytokines, such as BAF, which is a very important cytokine in lupus, IL-23 or IL-17. So some of the uh, nuclear autoantibodies, such as double-stranded DNA or anti-C1Q, can be deposited in the kidney directly or by the formation of immune complexes with nuclear antigens, such as the nucleosome, for example. And in the kidney, these immune complexes activate the complement, which leads to kidney damage and inflammation. Inflammation, kidney damage, induce the release of antinuclear antigens, which again stimulate the production of pathogenic autoantibodies. So there, there are a lot of loops in lupus, and that's why the disease is self-perpetuating. So if you don't treat the patient, the chronic renal inflammation will continue over a long time. So we have been able to uh, identify all these molecular pathways, and we have developed therapeutic agents that can target every step of this abnormal autoimmune direction. You can kill B cells by targeting CD20 antigens with rituximab or with uh, obinutuzumab. You can also inhibit the BATH pathway, which allows the survival of self-reactive B lymphocytes with belimumab or atacicept. A significant part of the new treatments target cytokines that are involved in SLE pathogenesis, like uh, anifrolimab, which targets the, the interferon alpha receptor, the ustekinumab, which targets IL-12 or IL-23, or guselcumab, targeting IL-23, and secukinumab, inhibiting IL-17. Don't forget voclosporine, which is a new generation calcinorin inhibitor, which mainly targets the T lymphocytes. Now, uh, Zahir, based on the pathogenesis you've outlined for us, I wanted to sort of proceed now to look at some of the approved therapies for patients uh, with lupus nephritis. And perhaps you can get us started on the first such approved uh, therapeutic agent. Yes, thank you, Murray. So the first drug that, is, that has been uh, approved recently in U.S. and in Europe is belimumab. Belimumab is a monoclonal antibody targeting the soluble bliss. And the approval of the drug was based on the bliss lupus nephritis trial. You can see the design on the slide. Patients were randomized to receive standard of care 
plus bed immuable or plus placebo. And the primary efficacy endpoint was assessed at two years, a point which is very important that in this trial, a responder needs to have reached a daily dose of prednisone less than 10 mg at week 24. At two years, 32% of the placebo group versus 43% of the belimumab group achieved the primary efficacy endpoint. The complete renal response was achieved by 90% of the placebo group versus 30% of the belimumab group. Pre-specified subgroup analysis were done, and the response, for example, was studied according to the standard of care during the induction period. In bliss lupus nephritis, the investigator had the free choice of standard of care, MMF or cyclophosphamide, according to the Eurolupus protocol. So the improvement was significantly greater with belimumab than with placebo when the patients were on MMF. With cyclophosphamide, there was no difference. However, given the small size of the subgroup, we cannot conclude, in fact. The second subgroup was that according to histological class, the class 3 or 4 response was significantly greater in the belimumab harm. Unfortunately, there was no difference for class 5, but again, the small size of the uh, subgroup preclude mm -hmm. any co definitive conclusion. And finally, the data of the bliss lupus nephritis were studied according to the baseline proteinuria. A UPCR less than 3 at baseline was considered low. And in the low proteinuria group, the belimumab harm had a better response than the placebo arm. And there was no effect in the high proteinuria group, probably because this group must have included a lot of class 5 patients. So what was the effect of belimumab on the risk of developing a new lupus nephritis? Well, this is a very important issue in lupus. In lupus, we are trying more and more to get drugs that are able to control the disease for a long time. What you can see on the left is that the risk of developing a new lupus nephritis flare was significantly reduced under belimumab in all patients, regardless of the standard of care, especially for pure class 3 and class 4. On the right panel, you can see the effect of treatment on kidney function. And you see that at baseline first, the GFR was often normal. So I said before that abnormal kidney function in lupus is not so frequent. And after two years of treatment, there was a numerically greater decrease under placebo. The safety was good. This is a very important point because you, we are treating patients with lupus nephritis for a very long time now, and there was no difference between the belimumab arm and the placebo arm in terms of safety. So the second drug, which has been um, approved recently in the US, not in the Europe, is voclosporin. And voclosporin is a new calcineurin inhibitor. Voclosporin has shown its, its efficacy on lupus nephritis in the Aurora trial. Patients were randomly assigned to oral voclosporin, and the drug was given on the background of placebo or only MMF in this study. No use of rescue medication. 
So when we look at the percentage of responder at one year, there was a 20% difference between the voclosporine arm and the placebo in favor of uh, voclosporine. And what is interesting is that at six months, this difference already existed. Like for belimumab in the phase three, there was no signal for the safety. The effect of voclosporine on kidney function was also measured. There is a little drop in GFR at the beginning, which is not unexpected because uh, it is a calcinoin inhibitor. And then it stays stable for the duration and it does not decline any further. So these, these data are very reassuring for the kidney function under calcinoin inhibitor for a long time. Thank you, Zahir. So that uh, puts into perspective now the two uh, new approaches. But uh, Brad, well, what about the role of rituximab? You know, that's been around for a while and uh, there's lots of data uh, on rituximab. Where, where does it fit in this picture? Yeah, um, so all of, all of the uh, lupus community was expecting big things from rituximab. Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, it was tried in non-renal lupus and lupus nephritis. And uh, the lupus nephritis trial was called Lunar, and it, it did fail to match its endpoint. Or did it? They did a post hoc analysis on the data, and uh, there were more partial renal responders to uh, rituximab. Uh, than to placebo, uh, but that didn't reach statistical significance, even though the number is high. In the patients who had a complete uh, peripheral B-cell depletion by flow cytometry, there was really significantly higher response um, by many fold, especially at week 78, compared to the patients who had incomplete peripheral B-cell depletion. So to answer your question precisely, Murray, we're not entirely sure of the place of rituximab. Uh, it has been used off-label for many years, despite these data. Rituximab requires a, a complement system to be intact uh, to really uh, kill cells, kill B cells, among other pathways that it uses to kill, kill B cells. And of course, in a lot of patients with lupus, complement is consumed and may not be available. Obinutuzumab is an anti-CD20, uh, uh, just like rituximab, except it's called a second generation. And, and uh, its structure is a little bit different, and it doesn't really require complement uh, to have cytotoxicity with B cells. And if you actually compare uh, peripheral B cell depletion with obinutuzumab plus mycophenolate and rituximab plus mycophenolate, you can see that the B cell depletion with obinutuzumab is very rapid onset compared to uh, mycophenolate and rituximab, and really is sustained uh, levels over 90% of depletion for a year. And that's not what was seen in the patients in the Lunar trial. So we tested this in this week 52. Obinutuzumab uh, wasn't quite statistically significant, but there was an increase in renal responses, and these are complete renal responses of about 12%. When we move to week uh, 76, uh, we see that there's about a 20% improvement in complete renal responses in the obinutuzumab group. And this was sustained to week 104, uh, suggesting really that we now have a B-cell drug depleting B-cells as we expect that actually does show a, a marked improvement. 
And this is currently in a phase three trial uh, to try and verify the data from this phase two trial. Uh, the safety uh, is quite uh, comparable to the safety profiles that Zaheer showed you for the other drugs. The remarkable thing is the addition of a B-cell depleter to pretty good immunosuppression with mycophenolate does not give us any sort of excessive safety signal. Uh, the drugs are well tolerated. So thank you. So in summary, the traditional concept of induction maintenance therapy may no longer be timely when novel drugs such as belumab or obinutuzumab and vocosporin can be used at the same dose early and long-term. And maybe it's time to move towards maybe a continued combination therapy of lupus nephritis uh, as a chronic disease and uh, using that from early on. So these are issues that we have to discuss now in terms of our new or, or future approaches towards patients with lupus nephritis. Based on all these previous discussions, uh, in this section, we're going to look at a new paradigm in the practice uh, of treatment for lupus nephritis. Um, the discussion points for this uh, uh, third section will include a proposed treatment algorithm for patients with lupus nephritis and the place of novel therapies in this uh, algorithm. Secondly, patient and disease characteristics that need to be considered when making decisions on who could most benefit from novel, novel add-on therapies to standard of care. And then finally, the importance of, and really the practical approach uh, for, uh, of uh, multidisciplinary care of patients with lupus nephritis to optimize patient outcomes. You've heard a little bit about that today, as we have an immunologist, a rheumatologist, and a nephrologist, and that's a bit of a hint of what we really need uh, for the management of patients with uh, with lupus. So, to start off, as I hear, you know, let's talk about what is the proposed treatment algorithm for patients with lupus nephritis, the place of these novel therapies that we discussed. And we'll talk about which patients of disease characteristics should be considered when making decisions and who could most benefit from novel add-on therapies to standard of care. Thank you, Maurice. So we all agree now that we should certainly start the treatment with, by using uh, pulses of methylprednisolone followed by 0.3 to 0.5 milligram per day of prednisone plus an immunosuppressant MMF or cyclophosphamide. But the positioning of new therapies is still a matter of debate. Schematically, there are two options. The first one is to introduce them straight away or to start with a common treatment and then introduce the new therapies depending on the response. My opinion is to introduce the new therapies early in the treatment, not to wait. Maybe we can discuss exactly which kind of patients should benefit from these new therapies. I'm quite sure that these new therapies should be given to relapsing patients or patients with renal impairment. My opinion is certainly we should start to treat all SLE patients with lupus nephritis with the new therapies because the 10% or the 20% difference between standard of care and standard of care plus the new therapies is something very important for our patients. But I think we, we can discuss all these points. 
Problem is, we don't have a good biomarker or way to understand who's going to require the new therapies. And frankly, a substantial portion of the patients in the trials uh, responded well to the standard, the current standard of care therapy. And, and so my rationale for sort of doing a staged approach is several fold, not, not the least of which is we're adding quite a bit of immunosuppression on top of already good immunosuppression. We've shown in short term that's safe, long term that remains to be seen. The uh, other issue uh, that we should consider, and you brought this up, Murray, is that we have adherence problems uh, with many of these patients and, and uh, taking an extra set of pills or injections uh, may exacerbate that problem uh, to a significant extent. Uh, the third is that these drugs are not available all over the world and they're extraordinarily costly. So with that in mind, I tried to uh, sort of take a, a, a position where we would uh, see how the patient is doing, develop some metrics or use some metrics that we know portend a good prognosis on the therapy the patient is taking, and that is to give a short duration on standard of care, and uh, then there's look for a baseline reduction in proteinuria and stabilization or improvement of kidney function. If that's going well, the patient could probably stay where they are. But if not, then that's when I would introduce uh, one of the new therapies. Now, I, I, you, you can argue with that. I'm happy to... to uh, you know, sort of agree that that's not how the drugs were given. But there's a couple of little things that help me believe that this is okay. The first is that in both of these trials, um, the patients who had been on ba background immunosuppressive therapy actually uh, did better with the added drug than the patients who were novel or an early diagnosed lupus nephritis in the case of Bliss LN, uh, or in the patients who had not been receiving mycophenolate uh, prior to entering the trial in the case of the Voclosporin trial. Uh, so that suggests to me we have a little bit of time to play with without harming the patient. Okay. Secondly, and this is a practical issue within the United States for sure, maybe other countries, is that when you apply to use any of these new drugs, of course, they have to be approved by insurance. And, the, and as Zahir pointed out, uh, Voclosporin is not yet approved in Europe. So I do think that what we really, really need to use the drug from the get-go is some biomarker of who's going to respond to standard care therapy and who's going to need something in addition. And then when you get to the addition, which one do you add? Well, mycophenolate plus Voclosporin you know, the FDA label for that says with a GFR that's greater than or equal to 45. So if you have impaired kidney function to start with, and I realize that that isn't everybody, and in fact, it's maybe very few people have such a low GFR when you start, um, but they can't have acute kidney injury at the time, then you can't use or shouldn't use Voclosporin. Although as a nephrologist, I have to be truthful, we do use calcineurin inhibitors at much lower GFRs, it just requires uh, watching the patients very carefully. Or on the other side, if the patient had quite a bit of proteinuria, we've seen the post hoc uh, or the subgroup analysis of, of the of the Lumab, the Blue Cell N trial, 
and it didn't work very well for those patients. That may give you a little bit of an indication of in whom uh, to use these new therapies, but it's still a rather complete, incomplete picture. And I think what we're going to see is as the new therapies are tried, we're going to see patients start to sort themselves out. We're going to be able to figure out in whom they're going to be of true benefit. Two approaches are one to start combination therapy get-go from the beginning and one to be to add uh, uh, therapy sequentially depending on initial responses. You know, this is sort of an approach taken in other chronic diseases, patients with hypertension. Some doctors start one drug, see what happens, then add another, and some prescribe two or three right from the beginning. This has to be worked out, as Brad was just saying, and uh, over time, maybe we will evolve into one of those two pathways. But these are the pathways that people dealing with lupus are at least thinking about now, uh, and and I'm sure will be the subject of discussion in the in the in the future. All right, so now well, let's talk about now we have all of that as background. What is a practical ex- uh, approach to multidisciplinary care? And I alluded to this of patients with lupus nephritis in order to optimize the outcomes. So, you know, Brad, you're not a rheumatologist primarily, although I, you certainly could be on my rheumatology team. I'll tell you. But uh, why don't you try to summarize this for us? Uh, because multidisciplinary team is really key here. And uh, you are such an important member of the multidisciplinary team for lupus. So why don't you lead us through uh, what, we, what we really need to look forward to in the care of patients with lupus? Several years ago, uh, the head of our rheumatology division and I got together and we realized that to provide the best care for patients with lupus nephritis would be to work together in clinic. So we developed a lupus clinic, and I know you have one in Toronto, and I know there's now many lupus clinics throughout the uh, world, in fact, where rheumatologists and nephrologists come together. Uh, I think it's important to understand, you know, when you look at lupus in the kidney, that's an important aspect, but you don't want to forget about all the other parts uh, that can go wrong in patients with lupus. And so uh, the rheumatologists and the nephrologists in my clinic work together looking at the lupus patient as a whole. We bring affiliated internal medicine specialists because, of course, lupus can affect many other organ systems, including the skin. And we have a dermatologist who's part of our clinic as well who specializes in autoimmune uh, disease. Having nurses who are used to understanding and dealing with these patients is absolutely essential. Getting appropriate drug for the appropriate patient when you need it um, is difficult, and having pharmacy folks in your clinic is critical, and we do have that now. I think that that this is the, the best way to identify patients with autoimmune disease very early in their disease, when in my opinion, they're probably most likely to respond to the least amount of immunosuppression, uh, which is sort of a desirable goal. And then as things develop over time, you sort of have a patient who's comfortable seeing a group of physicians and knows who to call when their joints hurt and who to call if they see blood in their urine. So that's my point of view. And I, I really do think that we would serve our lupus patients and the lupus community best if we develop these clinics throughout our countries and, and then we're able to refer patients to those clinics for the specialty care that they need. 
uh, in collaboration with their primary physicians uh, at home. Thank you so much. That's a very good summary of the multidisciplinary approach that we must take in treating patients with lupus. So let me just summarize. Uh, what we've uh, studied together today is that current treatment strategies in lupus and nephritis remain unsatisfactory in terms of complete re renal response in many patients and prevention of relapses and development of chronic kidney disease and unfortunately, in a significant number of cases, still leading to end-stage kidney disease. So to improve the prognosis of lupus nephritis, what we've uh, learned together today is that modifying the current treat-to-target approach in addition to a clinical target and a pathological target approach would be important, and a switch from conventional sequential therapy to maybe combination therapy and that means combination early on or perhaps combination in a sequence as we recently described. And then to increase the quality of life of patients with lupus to preserve their kidney function, a multidisciplinary team approach is very important. And with this, uh, I think we've covered the broad spectrum of lupus nephritis, its problems, its treatments, uh, its outcomes, and uh, future management. Thank you very much. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.